And now, Lord, I, I pray for help uh, on this sermon. Isaiah 53, way over my head. Amazing passage. Would you do a work, Lord? Would you speak through these words? And would you fill all of us with astonishment at what you've done, Jesus Christ, for us? Fill us with love for you because of what you've done and assurance of salvation because we're trusting you and all you've promised is ours through that. And then fill our hearts with joy to be able to share this good news with people around us. So come and work now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, what we always like to do is if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we'd like you to be able to to have one to read. So go ahead and raise your hand. Be bold. We'd like you all to have um, a copy of the scriptures in front of you this morning. And in in the Bibles we're passing out right now, Isaiah 53 is on page 613. So go ahead and, and turn there. Now I want to start off by telling you the story, uh, I'll call her Carol. Okay, I met Carol when I was pastoring down in Southern California. And she had visited our church and had made it clear that she was Jewish and was not interested in Jesus Christ. But, but she, she came forward one Sunday because she wanted to see if she could make an appointment uh, with the pastors to come by the offices during the week so that she could get prayer uh, for her recent diagnosis of cancer. And so we said we'd love to have her come by and pray. And so she was going to come by on a Wednesday morning. So Wednesday morning early, I was just up praying, and, and Lord, here this woman's coming who's Jewish, not interested in Jesus Christ. How, how can I help her? We want to pray for her healing, but Lord, more importantly, we want to see her soul healed, right? Forgiven of sin and born again and knowing you as her father. And so uh, I had all kinds of ideas about reasons I could give her for why Jesus was the Messiah. But all of a sudden, I just had this sense in my heart that the Lord was saying, read Isaiah 53 to her. That was it. Just read it to her. So I said, okay. So she got there, uh, sat down in my office. I gave her a, a Bible opened to Isaiah 53. And I had a copy of the Bible open to Isaiah 53 and just started to read. So I was reading and she was following along. And it got about a third, maybe halfway through and I just happened to look up, and I could see tears coming down her, her cheeks. Uh, she, she was weeping. And I said, what, what's going on? And I'll, I'll never forget this. She said, God's here. He's talking to me. I said, what's he saying? She said, he's telling me, this is Jesus. He is the Messiah. And so that day, we not only had a chance to pray with her for her cancer, but we also had the joy of praying with her as she received into her heart Jesus Christ as her Savior and her Lord and her treasure. Isaiah 53 is one of the most powerful passages in the Old Testament. Written around 700 B.C., 700 years before Christ, giving amazingly detailed and powerful prophecies about what the Messiah, what Jesus would do in dying for our sins. So let's take a look. I just want to read through the passage, make a couple of comments, and then open it up with some questions to take us deeper. So let's start, actually we want to start in chapter 52, verse 13. That's really where the section begins. Starts in 52, 13, and then goes to the end of chapter 53. And in verse 13, chapter 52, God is talking about Jesus. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
Everything he does is going to be perfectly wise. And as a result, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now that phrase high and lifted up is used three other times in the book of Isaiah. Each time it's a reference to God, Yahweh. So this is a clear statement here that Jesus, not only is he fully man, he's also fully God. And as a result of him acting wisely, he will be exalted. That is everything else in the universe When he returns, everything else in the universe will acknowledge his preeminence. Powerful. He will be exalted. But look what happens first, before that happens. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, the Messiah, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was beaten. He was scourged. So shall he sprinkle, that means bring forgiveness to, Many nations, kings, shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they've not heard, they understand. So this may mean that kings will be saved. It at least means that kings will be blown away by what Jesus Christ does. Verse 1, and yet, even though the kings respond that way, who among Israel has believed what he's heard from us, Isaiah says? And to whom among Israel has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the Messiah, grew up before him, before God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So that's looking really weak and insignificant. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that is, the grief and the sorrow, the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He bore that. Yet we esteemed him stricken, We're the ones that had sinned, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, punished by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's, that's sin described there. And the Lord God has laid on him, Jesus, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, false charges, he was taken away. And as for his generation, Israel at the time Jesus was alive on earth, who among them considered that he, Jesus, was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man at his death, crucified among thieves, buried in Joseph's tomb, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. 
There will be a vast multitude that no one can count saved. He shall prolong his days. He's going to be killed, and then he's going to prolong his days. Isn't that an allusion to the resurrection? The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, remember Gethsemane? He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus the Messiah, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, God's talking, the Father's talking, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. God's going to reward him. The Father's going to reward his son because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So he he intercedes. He brings before the Father his perfectly righteous life and his death for our sins is the basis for which God can forgive us and love us and save us. Isaiah 53. It's a powerful, powerful passage. And what I think God wants to do this morning is use these words, these truths, to prepare our hearts to celebrate communion Remember Jesus' death on the cross through celebrating communion, maybe more deeply, more humbly, more assuredly than maybe we ever have before. I just want to open this up with three brief questions. The first is, what have we done? Let's talk about us here, start to get the context, and look at verse 6. What have we done? Here's how Isaiah puts it. All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, the Bible teaches that God is like a perfect shepherd, and we are created like sheep. Okay, God's the shepherd, we're the sheep. And the reason that that that's the description used is because just like sheep need everything, we need everything. I mean, sheep need everything, right? If you don't lead them to pasture, they will starve. If you don't lead them to water, they will become dehydrated and die of thirst. If you don't, um, you know, lead them away from cliffs, they'll just walk over and be killed. If you don't, you know, protect them from wolves, they'll become dinner. They need everything, okay? Sheep need everything. And we are like needy sheep, and God is the perfect shepherd. And so all we need to do, all we needed to do, in order to have lives that are provided for and that are protected and where our hearts are satisfied and full, all we needed to do was own up to the fact that we're sheep and that God is the perfect shepherd and trust him and love him and follow him. It's all we needed to do. What have we all done? Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We all refused to admit that we are needy sheep. We've wanted to be in control. We've wanted to lead our own lives. Thank you. I'd like to be like a shepherd. You know, we haven't been willing to admit that we are needy and that God is the shepherd, that we're the sheep and he's the shepherd. So we all have turned our backs on God and walked our own way against his purposes for us, choosing our own way to go. We've all done that. Everyone on the globe has done that. Everyone who's ever lived except for Jesus Christ, has done that. And because God is perfectly just and perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, 
he has to punish everything that's against his purposes. And so every one of us has faced God's judgment, eternal judgment for our turning away from him. We've all been there. Before we were saved, that's exactly where we were. Now the story could have ended there. Humanity facing punishment. But God loves us. He has compassion for us. He cares about us. Make this more personal. God loves you. He has compassion for you. He cares about you. And so he sent his servant. And what has the servant done? That's the second question. What has the servant done? And just to, to, to get the context so you'll... I'm praying that we're all going to taste the magnitude, the wonder of what he's done. Three truths about the servant you've got to be clear on. One is, uh, we already saw it in the first verses of chapter 52, verse 12, we were, we were reading, high and lifted up, that's a reference to deity, but this is explicit in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah says that the name of the servant will be, remember, mighty God. The name of the servant will be mighty God. He will be fully God, which was so shocking because that's, here's the second truth. In chapter 9, he's just said that the servant is going to be born on the earth, fully man. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. Those are the first two truths. Then the third is right here in verse 11, that the Messiah will be morally blameless, perfect moral righteousness. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He is the righteous one. Perfect moral blamelessness. So Jesus is fully man, he's fully God, and he's morally blameless. Jesus, who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago, fully man, fully God, morally blameless. Now, what did he do? It's something unbelievable, which I couldn't believe unless it was written in God's book. But here's what he did. First, two things he did. First, he was willing to be punished in our place for our sins. Look at verses 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the first thing he did. He was willingly punished for our sins in our place. Second thing he did. He gave us the gift of his perfect moral righteousness. Gave it to us as a gift. His his total perfect moral righteousness, he gave it to us. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. We were sinful, but he will make many to be accounted righteous. I'm going to explain how that works in just a moment here. So those are the two things he's done. He was willing to be punished for our sins in our place, and he gave us the gift of his perfect moral righteousness. Now, 
Here's an illustration I want to use that I've used before. Let's see if I can get this set up here. Remember when I preached on Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I used this illustration. And uh, here we go. Okay. And I wanted to use it again just because it so helped me back then to, to get this and understand the magnitude of what Jesus Christ has done. Okay, so this, this board is us. Okay, you, me, here's us. And this is, this is Jesus over here. Okay, so, so here's us. All we like sheep have gone astray. And when needy sheep turn away from the perfectly providing and all-satisfying shepherd, here's how we end up living. Bitterness, selfish, greed, gossip, boastful, hypocrisy, grumbling, anger, envy, jealous, self-righteousness, lying, slander, lust. The list just goes on and on. This was me. And this was you. Right? Here's where we are. And because we have turned away from the shepherd, and because this is how we've lived against his will, against his commands, against his law, we face punishment from him. That's where I was before I was saved. That's where you were before, were before you were saved. And if you're not yet saved, this is where you are right now. You're, you're facing God's punishment right now. And you're cut off from God. You can't connect to God because Punishment is what you deserve by the way you've lived before God. You've turned away from the shepherd just like we all have. So this is where all of us were. Anything else I want to say about that, that first part here? Okay. All right. So, so here's where we were. And God could have just left things here. But in great mercy, he chose to save us. He loves us. He cares about us. And so he sent Jesus, okay, Jesus, fully God, fully man, born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, and Jesus lived a perfectly, morally blameless life. Jesus' whole life, pure heart, kindness, peaceful humility, love for God, bold, honest, mercy, patient, serving, compassion, forgiving, Perfect moral blamelessness. There's been one human being, there's only been one human being who has lived a perfectly blameless life. Jesus Christ. No one else even comes close. Everyone else, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. Jesus perfectly trusted the Father, perfectly loved the Father, perfectly loved everywhere he went. Perfect moral blamelessness. This is who Jesus is. This is how he lived. Fully God, fully man, perfect moral blamelessness. And Jesus chose to die, be punished in our place for our sin. So here's what happened. The moment that you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord and as your treasure, here's what took place. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God took your sin and he put it upon Jesus. Here's your sin. Took your sin and he put it upon Jesus. And then he punished Jesus for your sin. It says God crushed him in these verses. Your sin put upon Jesus, and God punished Jesus. Jesus was willing. Yes, Father, do it. Do it. I mean, he prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, your will, let it be done. 
And the Father punished Jesus for my sin and for your sin. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, so all the punishment that, that I deserved, that you deserved, it was all poured out upon Jesus. This outpouring of wrath and punishment that I deserved to experience from God, all of it was poured out upon Jesus. Not, not a drop is left in God's heart about my sin. Not a drop of wrath is left. It's all been poured out. It's all there on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, all the wrath that the Father has against me for my sin was finished in being poured out upon Jesus. So how much more wrath then, if I'm trusting Jesus, how much more wrath do I need to experience from God for my sin? None. Somebody got it, okay. Anybody else? How much wrath? None. Because it was all poured out upon Jesus Christ. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all and punished him with tears in the Father's eyes as he was punishing him. Jesus was willing. Father was willing because God loves us. Wants us to be saved and forgiven. But it doesn't stop here. Okay, because we still have a problem. The only way, because God's holy, perfectly righteous, the only way I can be connecting to God, know Him, love Him, trust Him, have Him caring for me and watching over me, is if I am perfectly morally blameless. God is too pure even to behold sin, the Bible teaches us. So, well, how's that going to happen? I know me. You know you. How's that going to happen? Here's the second thing Jesus did. He took his perfect moral blamelessness and he gave it to me as a gift. He clothed me with his perfect moral blamelessness. So now, because I'm trusting Christ, because you're trusting Christ, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfect moral blamelessness. And he loves you in Christ, right? Yes, there's some stuff back there that's not good. Okay, we understand that. I know me, you know you. Because you're trusting Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness was given to you as a gift. And so God is passionately loving you, caring for you, watching over you as you're trusting Jesus Christ because you're clothed with his perfect righteousness. Now, what did you do To have these two amazing things happen? To have your sin put upon Jesus and punished in Jesus and have his perfect righteousness given to you, clothed in his perfect righteousness, so you're now accepted by God and loved by God forever? Did you, like, go to church a whole lot of times? Or maybe you uh, meditated for three hours? Or maybe you said some kind of prayers or whatever? What, what, What? There's only one thing we can do to have this happen. We trust Jesus. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone. You come to him as you are. Very humbling. Don't think you need to try to get good first to come, because that you can't and you won't. And if you think you are yourself righteous, that's worse. Okay, so you come to him as you are. You surrender to him as you are. You confess your sins to him as you are. You receive him as your savior and Lord and treasure as you are. 
And when you mean that, he goes to work. All your sins punished in his death on the cross 2,000 years ago, his gift of perfect righteousness given to you, you're completely accepted by God in Christ. He goes to work with a, a moral renovation project changing you, and he will keep that going, keep you from stumbling, as we studied in our home group Wednesday night. You'll enter heaven to be raised from the dead, be with God in the joy of knowing him forever, by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, I bet you there's some of you out there, and, and more of you ought to be thinking this, saying, that, that just sounds too good to be true. Uh, I'd love to believe that that was true. It sounds like a, like a fairy tale, maybe. Is there any, any, any reason I could really believe that? And that's a really good question. God loves to have us ask him, help me, help me believe this. I believe, help my unbelief. And what struck me in this passage is that one way we can know this true is by asking this question. Who's fulfilled the details of this prophecy? Isaiah was written, these words were written around 700 BC, 700 years before Christ. These words were written. Prophesying someone being on earth who was astonished, does something amazing. So who's done it? A couple prophecies I want to pull out from uh, Isaiah chapter 11. His name will be called um, Almighty God. That's what it is. It's Almighty God. And Jesus, when he walked the earth, he did things like speak to a storm, stop. And the storm stops. God took five loaves and two fish, multiplied them to feed, was it 8,000? God speaks to a blind eye, be healed, sees, God. Anybody else done things like that? Displaying that not only is he fully man, he's also fully God. Jesus also was born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So those are some from before this chapter, but then look at a couple from within this chapter. Verse three, uh, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. At the hour of his arrest, not only had all Jerusalem turned against him, but all of his disciples fled from him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And you read the gospel accounts during his trial, with all the false accusations that were brought against him, he uttered not a word in his defense. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked, I just think this is an allusion to his, he was crucified with, between two thieves, right? And then with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea let Jesus be buried in his tomb. Joseph was a rich man. And then verse 10, stunning statement. Even though he'd be crushed by God, even though he'd be killed, Isaiah says, he will prolong his days. How can somebody who's been killed have his days be prolonged? He rose from the dead. He rose. So Isaiah writes these words 700 years before Christ, and you read Jesus' life, and you compare these words, and Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy. Isaiah wasn't just spinning off some fairy tale out, wouldn't this be interesting? It happened. It happened in history. We have four eyewitness accounts, documents, Matthews, Marks, Luke's, John's, eyewitness accounts that these things happened in history. This is true. This is true. 
Many of you have experienced this. You've put your trust in Jesus Christ. And the moment that you did, all of your sins put upon Jesus, punishing Jesus on the cross. Jesus' perfect righteousness given to you. You're clothed with it. You're accepted by the Father, loved by the Father. He delights to do you good. Some of you haven't experienced it yet, but you, you could right now. You could right now. And those of us who have experienced it, what communion is about now, it's a time for us to remember what he's done. To remember, because it can become familiar, right? It can become old news instead of amazing news. So here's some things I want to pray God will do as we partake of communion. In fact, let's have the, once the band come on up. They're going to be leading us in a moment. First of all, some of you, um, you haven't yet trusted Jesus Christ, and we are so glad you're here. Uh, we're honored that you're here. We'd love to do whatever we can to help you come to know and trust Jesus Christ. So you haven't trusted him yet, and what I would urge you to do is you can trust him right now. Come to him as you are. He's resurrected. He's alive. He's here. And you come to him as you are. You surrender to him as you are. You ask him to change you as you are. You confess your sins as you are. You, you put your trust in him. And the moment that you do that meaningfully from your heart, all your sins will be punished in Jesus. And all this perfect righteousness is given to you. And you will leave here a brand new creation. So you could trust Jesus Christ right now. And this could be your first, this would be your first communion. If you're trusting Jesus, that's the communion's for you. I would guess some others of you this morning, you have trusted Christ. But you are plagued with guilt for something that's happened in the past. And it's a burden on you. You still feel the weight of it. And in your case, the problem is not that, well, in your case, Jesus like left some of the sin on you or something like that. No, no, no. In your case, the problem is that you need to really see more clearly the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done. See it more clearly and just trust him. Confess that sin to him afresh. Ask him to pour his love upon you. And as you do that meaningfully, you will feel the guilt of your sin lifting off and the love of God and the, the assurance of God's favor coming upon you. And that's what I want to pray happens to you right now as we partake of communion. That if you are struggling, if you're trusting Jesus but still bound up with guilt, that that can just be freed. Okay? All right. That's how you do that. Others of you... Um, You've trusted Christ in the past, but if you're honest, you really feel far from God. When was the last time you really sensed his love and were before him and worshiping him and loving him and close to him, sensing his nearness? And I just want to encourage you, you don't, you don't need to you know, get good enough before you can just come to him, but come to him as you are, just the same way you came the very first time you came, and trust him. Surrender to him as you are. Confess your sinfulness to him as you are. Trust him as you are. Ask him, meet me. Meet me here at the foot of the cross. I want to know you more. I don't want to be far from you. Meet me and he will meet you. Others of you, you've, you're already trusting Christ, but um, your heart is kind of dull towards Jesus. Uh, to be honest, most of the time you're loving other things a lot more than you love Jesus. It's been a long time since you've just been broken at the reality of what he's done for you. I've been there, easy to be there, time, routine, whatever. 
Let's pray this morning, Mercy Hill, let's pray that this morning the Lord will break into our hearts in a fresh way and blow us away with the love of Christ and what it means that we've had all of our sins punished in Him and all of His perfect righteousness given to us. Oh God, God give, us, give us a fresh sense of what's happened to us. This has happened to you. This is the most amazing thing. And yet we can get dull to it, right? I can. You can. Okay, so let's pray. Let's just come before the Lord. This is not routine. This is you doing business with the God of the universe at the foot of the cross, beholding what Jesus, his son, has done. So Lord, would you come right now? Unless you help us, Lord, we are, we can't do anything. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Take us now, we pray. And would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts? Would you soften our hearts so that we can see in a fresh way the wonder of the cross and lay our lives down afresh and love your son and receive forgiveness and be filled with love for you and be renewed in our zeal to advance the gospel with our neighbors and friends. So come, Lord, upon us right now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.